0: Welcome to the Penguin Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Alex Clark, publisher at Penguin, here with Mary Evans, fiction publisher. Hello. And five of our authors, Harry Sidebottom. Hello. Karen Maitland. Hello. Stuart Binns. Hello. Kate Williams. Hello. And Louise Berridge. Hello. All of our authors today are experts in their period of history, which range from the Roman Empire, to the Norman Conquest, the Middle Ages, 17th century France, and Victorian London and we'll be hear- hearing all about their historical fiction today in the Penguin podcast.
0: So, Karen, let's start with you. When did your fascination with the Middle Ages begin, and what colour do you think it brings as a backdrop to your storytelling?
2: It really all began when I went on a trip to Bruges, and I came across the concept of the Beguinage, the city of women. And when I was going round the Beguinage. Um, I was asking the people there you know, who were Bagans, what kind of women were they, and I was told that they were all nuns. Um, And later on that day I went to the cathedral and I asked the cathedral guide what Bagans were, and the cathedral guide said they were all prostitutes. And immediately I thought, I've got a story here, because anybody that can feel that passionately that they were either saints or sinners... um, you know, there is, there is something about these women that were, were very strange. So I came home and started to do the research and that really led me into the whole realm of the Middle Ages. And I became totally fascinated by the medieval mindset, the way that the, in the Middle Ages, um, magic and superstition was part of their everyday life. They lived with angels and demons. Um, they had a remarkable... Uh, knowledge of medicine and um, of architecture and and engineering but at the same time when they were setting out to war or they were going to perform an operation um, they would cast runes they would um, seek advice from soothsayers and nearly everything in their everyday life was tied up with myth and magic and and it was that mindset that really fascinated me about the middle ages
1: and Harry, I mean, in, talk, in terms of kind of immersive historical experience, what what drew you particularly to the uh, period of the Roman Empire that you've chosen, the, the the reign of Valerian?
3: Well, I think I chose the mid third century AD because it was a time of very a lot of political and military events in a very short space of time. It's a time of very rapid change, um, a time when old certainties were breaking down. The certainties that Rome was invincible. Um, emperors were no longer made in the senate house they were made in the barracks the empire that emerged from the third century is very different from the one that went into it but um, there's also a rather sort of sneaky reason for choosing that period that's wonderfully obscure and as a don said to me when i wrote the first one congratulations you picked a period so obscure that no one can prove you wrong about anything <laughs>
1: Um, stuart you 've also chosen a period which, which stretches way back all, all the way back to the Norman conquest. Is there anything about the, the sort of the fact that not a huge amount of is known around that era that, that appealed to you or well, my
4: choice for the eleventh century was in a way slightly more mundane than most in the sense that I was actually looking for a period um, uh, because I wanted to write. Um, I, I thought, well, what can I write about and i the only thing I thought I could manage was something about heroic adventure, something that would entice me and something that would perhaps be quite popular. So I searched for periods and I searched for subjects Um, and, you know, went all the way back to school days and, you know, my own sort of naive historical knowledge and and stumbled across, you know, the great Victorian hero, with the Wake. And I thought, well, that's a guy, that's a story, that's what I want to do. And, of course, as I got into it, and I'm conscious I'm sitting with eminent historians, and as I got into the history myself and I read the work of others, I realised what an amazing period it was. And, and the more I read, the more it opened up for me. And, of course, it, it is, as I now know, this great fulcrum in history. Um, you know, this sort of time when, in, in, in my humble view you know, modern Britain was forged and, and everything about the British Isles now and a good deal of Northern Europe and indeed you could argue sort of the whole Anglo-American world hinged on those those few months in 1066.
0: It was interesting, isn't it, because you've all chosen very interesting periods of history that in a way kind of changed the world um, and Kate, you know, I think the Victorian era in particular, you know, there was so much um, progress in terms of you know, cultural terms, political terms, scientific terms, um, you know a fascinating period in which to set a novel. And, you know, you also focus tantalizingly actually on the darker side of, of the Victorian era. You know, we are aware of some of those many and um, public achievements, but you choose to go, you know, behind the public face. Um, you know, what new insight did you really want to share with your readers?
5: Well yes, Mary, the Victorian age is, is the is the age of great expansion for Britain. It's by the end of Victoria's reign, she would a quarter quarter of the world's population. Cities were growing Industrialization, new inventions, and it all seems so outward looking. And our vision of the Victorians is so stereotypical the, the women who weren't amused, the, te- the, te- the piano legs covered up on the, on the pianos. And really, under all that, it's full of secrets and darkness and lies. The cities were expanding, but there was murder, there was crime, there was darkness. And that was the side of the Victorians that I was really so eager to show the, the kind of obsessional underworld that is often overlooked.
1: And, and Louise, in terms of of kind of the, the overriding themes of, of the period you 've chosen the, the Thirty Years' War, which is a particularly bloody conflict in in Europe, wh- in terms of those kind of the underside of of history, wh- what do you feel about the period allowed you to, to have free range in fiction
6: I think it was the contrast because i 'd first come across seventeenth century France through reading the Three Musketeers, like everybody else. And there was, in the late 60s, the most appalling, badly dubbed French television series called The Flashing Blade, <laughs> which was brilliant. Too. We'd had us all sort of playing with swords. But that was the first time I realised that there was more to that period than just kings and queens and musketeers, that there was this incredibly brutal war going on all over Europe at the same time. And the contrast fascinated me even then, because you've got these noblemen, these gentlemen of chivalry and honour, and they're the same people who are going around slaughtering thousands of innocent villages, murdering children, and not batting an eyelid about it. And when I started to read seriously into it, I found that was more and more the case. Though, interesting, like so many of you, the 17th century was a period of, of change, huge change in terms of how the Code of Honour was actually evolving. But to me, that posed a huge question, which is really where the books came from, which is, what happens if you combine this old-fashioned idea of honour, whatever that may mean, with real humanity, with something that has developed into the social conscience that we know it today and I wondered what happens if you take a man like that, and how could he possibly survive in a world that ruthless and that corrupt? And that, of course, is where Andre was born, and that's where, in fact, the whole series came from.
1: And in terms of kind of resonance of, of historical fiction to the modern reader, I'm mean, obviously you've all pulled out themes there from from your historical periods, which are, are clearly kind of you know, have have a felt with the contemporary reader, and and. Yeah, you know, what what's your kind of mission with your readership? What would you like to achieve with your your readers? Karen.
2: Well, interestingly, I was I write standalone novels, um, and I always start with a modern issue. So that for um, Company of Liars, the issue was really um, the hounding of individuals by um, the press and the media to get at the real truth. And with my current novel, um, The Gallows' Curse, there were three modern issues that I wanted to explore. One was people trafficking. The other was the idea um, of um, when we go into a, um, a situation like the Middle East um, and we think we're liberating a group of people, um, are they happy to be liberated? And in the gallows curse, this was a situation where France was threatening to invade. England in order to get rid of the despotic um, John and they actually saw it as a means of liberating the people of England and of course the people of England were terrified they didn't want to be liberated because they saw this great conquering army coming in that would destroy and rape and pillage and do all the things that armies do so I was interested to explore both sides of that and also um, I came across a very, I was in a, um, a hairdresser's and i was reading one of those real life magazines um, and i came across an article in there which said that people um, who had had organ transplants suddenly started to experience personality changes and have memories that they hadn't had before um, and i was looking back for a period of history in which this might have happened before and obviously in the middle ages they didn't have organ transplants but they did have sin eaters um people who would consume the sins of others and that seemed to be a parallel situation so i'm at all with all of my novels i'm trying to find um the situation where i can say we've been there done that got the t-shirt before um and 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 try and make that link for the readers even at a subconscious level because i'm not sure that you know, readers are necessarily aware of it, but that's my starting point—the modern—and then finding a parallel historical period.
1: And Stuart, you know all about sort of conquering French armies from the, <laughs> the Norman Conquest. Was 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 that that sort of Englishness? Was that your driving mo- momentum in terms of thematically for for your modern reader?
4: Well, I, I mean, I think first of all, I wanted to write an adventure story that could be enjoyed on a on a fairly superficial level. Um, you know I wanted to write the sort of thing that people would say well that you know it was a great story and you know good characters and uh, you know the kind of thing we we all like to write and like to read indeed but I also wanted to do to write something that that paid homage to the history um, and that had you know rather more subtle themes as well and, and indeed as you say you know I, I wanted to, to try and suggest that the 11th century was important for various reasons and you know the the origin of Britishness and whatever that is today, um, the beginnings of the fight for freedom and various themes like that. I wanted to include underneath a good a good story.
0: And Kate, I think Catherine's a rather fascinating heroine, and I feel quite consciously that you, in many ways, subvert a lot of the Victorian archetypes in your novel. Do you feel that Catherine shares some of the
5: sensibilities of a modern woman? You know, does she face some of the threats that a modern woman faces? Yes, I think Catherine does have a modern sensibility. I. W- I was a historian in the Victorian period before, so I spent a lot of my time reading Victorian ladies' memoirs and letters and 18th century letters, and some of her sensibility definitely comes from the Victorian period, but some of it also reflects how much Victorian women were were trammelled. They were desperate to escape the trammels of their lives, the trammels of politesse and domesticity, and they were desperate to escape the home, a lot of them as well. And Catherine herself is so eager to escape her home and search around the dark streets of london and i think also i love cities i'm i'm fascinated by cities and i think we live in the 21st century in the growth of the mega city but in, in britain but also in china and india and these cities have a lot of victims and these were the ones i was trying to show in Victorian london as well
1: and harry i mean y- your your kind of portrayal of roman life is is completely alien to, to a life that, that we know as modern readers how do you make that connectivity
3: well i actually don't think it's completely alien <laughs> actually the um yeah, you know, the romans the fascinating thing about the romans for me is the mix of in some ways they're very much like us um they feel love hate fear they live in nuclear families and so on but in other ways they're as alien as alien could be i mean they they live in a very different thought world. Um, summed up for me, actually, in an anecdote um, by the great Dr Galen, who um, was telling a, was writing a medical textbook about the dangers of getting very angry, the physical, mental dangers for your health. And his father was a very um, unangry man. But his father's friends were very angry people and when slaves annoyed them, they tended to punch him in the face. And Galen, Galen's dad used to upbraid them say, this is very, very bad, you really shouldn't do that. Because if you actually punch a guy in the face, there's a really nasty danger of cutting your knuckles on his teeth. <laughs> what you should do is send another slave, get a big stick, and then you can beat the guy in your own sweet time. And then the good thing is, you won't be doing it in anger. You'll be doing it in a philosophic, <laughs> calm, rational way. <laughs> well, when I first read this anecdote, it was absolutely bizarre, that there is no hint, there's nothing on the radar about the pain and humiliation of the slave. It just doesn't feature. It's all about the slave-owning class. You know, the minor danger of physically hurting yourself and the really serious danger of losing your self-control, ending up like a barbarian. Because um, for me, I mean, the great thing about historical novels is that playing with the sameness and the otherness. I think uh, Mary Reno, one of my all-time favourite historical novelists, summed it up by saying something on the lines of the pleasure of writing and reading historical fiction is the tension between what is universal to the human condition and what is specific to a time and place. Although
1: I may have got that quote totally (laughs) wrong. And Louise, in terms of, of kind of Andre's struggle with his nobility mm-hmm. and the kind of the conflicts of of his duty to to the, the sort of traditions and, and and ways of the old society, but also his seeing how humanity is being corrupted by that old society, how how do you pan that out for the modern reader?
6: I think Andre's journey having to decide between honour, humanity and indeed survival. I think it's probably one of the most universal questions there could possibly be. You can even see it in, in a film like Wall Street. It's always this question of do you have to be really evil in order to succeed? Is it necessary to be vile to survive? I think it probably couldn't be more relevant than it is right now. And actually that's something that's already come up in this discussion that i'm finding interesting we're looking back at the past and and we are quite rightly saying here are some extraordinary and fairly horrific things that people did and how they felt but i do wonder sometimes which is probably very sentimental of me if there isn't something that we've lost as well if there wasn't sometimes a kind of innocence in the way in which people were prepared to believe then. There is something called honour that you could actually die for. There were more important things than just surviving. And the second period that I'm working on, I'm presently writing a novel set in the Crimean War, I've come across that really strongly because we have these tremendous sort of clichéd ideas of stiff, upper lipped Englishmen, and we all laugh at that because it's terribly funny. But when you read the diaries and the letters, it was real. I really couldn't have made it up. And when you come across a story... In somebody's eyewitness account, during the Battle of the Alma, they're crossing the river, there is a man, both both of his legs have been blown off. But he's sitting against the wall, cheering the guards on. The line was actually, Go in, beauty guards, go in and win. If I write that, people will probably fall about laughing, but... It's actually heartbreakingly true. And I do wonder if we haven't perhaps lost a little too much innocence ourselves.
0: Actually, that's really interesting. Karen, for me, in The Gallows' Curse, your protagonist, Rafe, is absolutely fascinating because he was one of the castrati, taken away as a child, but actually couldn't sing. And the consequences for this man, who was this beautiful man, great big kind of statuesque man, and then he's reduced to this almost laughing stock. But you know what research did you do? What reality is this based on? Were there a lot of children who were casualties in this way?
2: Yes, I was quite horrified by the when I began to dig into the idea of the castrati. These were um, children who were castrated in order to be able to preserve their angelic voices for the church choirs and the great cathedral choirs right across across Europe. And the sadness of it was that many children were castrated before puberty in order to preserve the voice. Um, But of course, even though their voices didn't necessarily, well, they didn't break, they could crack. And and simply because they had a child's voice meant that they couldn't necessarily sing. The voice was destroyed. And in a society where actually fathering children and being a man in that sense was um, a huge deal, um, these people were then left to grow up and they were completely rejected by the church who had castrated them um, because somebody who was to quote Deuteronomy, wounded in the rocks, um, could not (laughs) serve um, in the altars of of the temple. So they were not allowed to become priests. They were not allowed to become monks, which would have been the obvious. They were just thrown out into society. And I was quite horrified to discover that the last uh, castrati actually died in 1921 in the Vatican. Um, So it was something that went on from the 4th century Right up into our own century, and to to bring that into a kind of perspective, there are actually recordings of this man's voice, um, which means that you know our, our great grandparents or even our grandparents would have heard um, castrati opera singers and castrati um, choir singers um, in their own lifetime, which is is quite amazing. Um, but of course you know being castrated um as i'm sure is is true in a lot of the other authors periods was this huge stigma um because you very often castrated people in war you know if if you wanted to really humiliate your enemies you castrated your prisoners and even at the battle of culloden you castrated the dead um just to humiliate them even further The, the the english castrated the scots for which they have never forgiven us i think um but, yes, it, it, um, so you 've got this amazing group of people in society who were these beautiful beautiful looking men up to about the age of thirty, and then their bodies changed and became, became absolutely hideously ugly almost overnight, um, who who really fade out of history. There's this kind of substrata um, of them there. And they're really not talked about in history. And and it's one of the things that I think as historical novelists that we can really do is to give a voice to the voiceless, the the ordinary people of history, not necessarily the kings and queens. And I'm sure Kate is is, into the same thing, that it's these people who are written out of history that we can, as historical novelists, give their rightful place in history and give a voice to them and make them heard um, for the first time, really.
5: Yes, I agree. I mean, the, the Victorians themselves suddenly became concerned that there were no voices of poor people and no studies of the poor whatsoever. And I, I absolutely agree. There's been these voices who have been written out of history, which for so long has been written top down. And it's so great to be able to reincarnate these voices and discover their secrets.
1: Harry, you, you've, you've got a, in terms of your hero, in terms of Ballista, he's, a, he's an outsider, one of these, you know, is that, in terms of the lost voices, in terms of the the, the people that history doesn't quite recognise, is that something that, that drew you to the character of Ballista, that, the very outsiderness of his his history?
3: Well, he's actually a historical character, I made him an outsider. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We, we don't know if he's an outsider or an insider. He's just a general um, who we know next to nothing about and what tiny things we know are all actually in the third novel, Line of the Sun. The rest is all made up. Yeah, that's part of the reason I wanted him an outsider. But um, another reason, I think, was because outsiders tend to comment on the power structure, the society they're in. Um, and as a classicist, the thing that always springs to my mind is you have... Take two of the great classical historians. You've got Tacitus and Polybius. Tacitus was an insider. He's a senator, he's a consul. The thing about reading his annals is you have to know a lot about Rome to actually work out what on earth he's driving at. He hints, he implies. He doesn't need to spell it out. He's an insider writing for insiders. It's a bit like a Don from All Souls, you know, writing an Oxford thing. It's all, if a nod's as good as a wink, if you're in the club, you know. Whereas Polybius was a Greek, and he went to Rome as a diplomatic hostage. And he hung out with a lot of important Romans, including Scipio Emilianus, the guy who destroyed Carthage. But he remained a Greek. And so when he wrote his history, he actually was explaining to another culture, to the Greeks, what these Romans were all about. And so he actually tells us stuff. And for us, that makes him a much more useful historian. And I thought it would be much more interesting to have a character who was an outsider, it would be much more natural for him to reflect on society, politics, whatever in Rome, than having yet another Roman hero. Who wouldn't? Because this stuff would be no need to say it. You know, his audience would already know these things. There was an additional reason, actually, that there's a modern preconception that the Roman Empire is this huge, monolithic thing full of Romans. Well, of course it wasn't. You know, 65 million people, uh, the vast majority of whom aren't Roman at all. They may have Roman citizenship, They may have adopted a Latin name, but they're ethnically not Roman. And their first culture, quite often, wasn't Roman. And they they are a forgotten voice. I mean, we just don't know to what extent, when you're given Roman citizenship, you take a Roman name, do you become a Roman? Do you just jettison everything that went before? I thought, well, probably not. So I I wanted someone sort of caught between two cultures. In
0: terms of being caught between two cultures, Kate, you have a killer... (laughs) who, in many ways, I guess, is drawn from Jack the Ripper influences, particularly given the Victorian period. Um, How do you feel about creating a killer who is someone who's relatively well-to-do but is very much part of of the Victorian underworld?
5: Yes, well... It's a very interesting question, Jack the Ripper and the Victorians. I mean, Jack the Ripper was so exciting to the Victorians because essentially he was the first serial killer. Essentially, previous to Jack the Ripper, people believed that murders were committed by large groups or gangs, and he was the first one. It's partly the cult cult of individualism and also Jekyll and Hyde and Sherlock Holmes. They created the notion of the individual serial killer, and as a consequence, the poor man playing Jekyll and Hyde on stage got arrested, suspected of being Jack the Ripper. <laughs> poor man, because he was so convincing in the role. <laughs> the perils of acting. And I... So Jack... And it is much earlier than Jack the Ripper. This is, you know, uh, you know well over 40 years earlier. But what I wanted to suggest was the... Loneliness and the individuality and the terror of the city that the individual serial killer brings out—that's what we're most afraid of when a serial killer comes. It's because we're so vulnerable. Their their murders seem so random; they could catch any of us. And where poss- are we safe at night? And where possibly might he be coming? So that was completely my vision. And there's no, as we all know, there's no class distinction in murder and in desire to kill. The 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 reason that the, the the purpose that makes us want to kill is not related at all to class. It can be any possible level of society could, could, could have created Jack the Ripper. And, of course, we still don't know whether he was rich or poor.
1: That breaking down of kind of rich and poor and the, the sort of boundaries of society figures heavily in, in the, the story of Andre. Uh, is that something that you, you wanted to highlight? That kind of this, Was this a fulcrum moment in, in history? or how, how did you feel about that?
6: It very much was a a fulcrum. The whole 17th century in Europe was a massive turning point. We began to see already the first revolts that little more than 100 years later would actually become the French Revolution. And that's why, for me, arguably the most important character in Honour and the Sword and also in Blood and Steel is the character of Stefan, who is... Really, little more than a peasant. He's an artisan. My hero is, of course, conventionally a, a nobleman, Andre Chevalier de Roland. But Stefan's voice is the voice of the outsider. He is the man who can actually look at society as it really was and speaks arguably with the most modern voice. But I do wonder we, we've said several times about the importance of speaking up for these people who weren't heard in their day. But I think it's also important for us to make sure that even the big figures get their voices. Because sometimes there's a tendency, because somebody was a king, because they were rich, because they were important, we feel it's all right to say anything we like about them. And one of the characters I have to deal with in Blood and Steel is is Cardinal Richelieu. And we all know who Cardinal Richelieu is. We've all seen, goodness knows how many versions of The Three Musketeers. And he's this power-crazed, sadistic villain. But in actual fact, he was arguably the greatest statesman of his age. Richelieu was probably the only man who stood between Europe, including Britain, and the domination of Catholic Spain. Without Richelieu, the world would look a very different place now. He was also a human being. The poor man had piles. The second I heard that, my heart bled for him. (laughs) He really did suffer. But I wanted to try and put the record straight. It's tempting to go, no, everybody wants to see Richelieu flogging people and murdering them. But I felt we do still have a duty to be truthful. It's somehow... We can feel, because they're long dead, we can do what we like. But the story that most horrified me was when I learned that after the French Revolution, Richelieu's body was dug up and his preserved face was removed. And it was kept in the possession of a private collector who used to bring it out after dinner and make faces with it. And although I'm laughing and feeling terribly morally superior, you think, isn't that sometimes what we're doing? Animating the dead, putting words in their mouths they didn't say. Um, I personally feel we have a huge responsibility to make sure we don't do that.
1: That brings us very neatly on Stuart, who figures uh, very heavily with, with very well-known uh, historical characters like William the Conqueror and, and Harold. And how did you feel about bringing those voices to life?
4: It's interesting what you say because I had dilemmas of that sort because I had these three giant figures that we know quite a lot about: mm-hmm. Hardrada, William, and, and Harold. Um, and particularly through the Victorians, we, we have them in a sort of caricature as well. You know, William was the bastard, and Hardrada was the great Viking, and Harold was kind of the good guy, really. Um, and I struggled with that quite a lot because, you know, you don't want to just repeat the stereotypes that you already know. But to a certain extent, they were inevitable because if you, if you fiddle with them too much, then the reader says, well, hang on a minute, I, I don't remember that something of like that. So what I tried to do was just make them fuller and try and give some background to why they were as, as they were. I mean, you know, Hardrada was apparently six and a half feet tall, so it's hardly so surprising <laughs> that he should be seen as a giant man. And, and, and they were all very big men in, physically and in terms of their personality. So I just drew on that. Um, and the same with, with Herowood. You know, we have this tantalising little bit about him which kind of opened the door to make him into this, this heroic figure. But of course to make him real for people he had to be flawed as well. There had to be reasons why he went on the journey that he went on. And that of course allows you to make him real for people. So you could admire him, you could want to be like him, or little boys would want, to, you know, big boys and little boys would want to be heroed. But at the same time, if he's if he's too super real, too too super heroic, you wouldn't buy it. So that gives you lots of opportunities to to get into genuine personality traits and to get a real story of you know, what happened to him and why, why, why his journey
1: was as it, as it was. We're, we're just about running out of time, so I just wanted to ask one last question of you all, really, which is, you know, what's, what's the most satisfying element of being one of, a historical novelist, of, of bringing these worlds to light? What, what keeps, keeps you uh, uh, ablaze with the passion for your writing?
3: Well, I think one thing for me would be the... Um, chance to reach out to a far wider audience than my history books or straight history articles do to actually reach a far bigger audience for the classical world you know, something I've spent my whole life studying, and I think it's fascinating and fun and you know, if people get into it via my novels, that's a uh, job done really.
5: Well I love writing true history and history books but it's also marvellous to be able to invent and speculate and sometimes make things up as well in, in a history book if you don't know something you have to say that the scholarship can't make it clear whether or not this is true or not but the measure of the debate is perhaps this you don't have any time for that in a novel you just choose and you have characters and you have reality and you can really tell a story which isn't quite the same in history Brilliant
4: Stuart well, for me, it was, it was simple, really. I think you know, it's, it's obvious around this table that everyone's a great s- storyteller. And you become a great storyteller because you've got a passion for the story that you've got and you just want to share it. Um, and you know, I think we've all done other things in our, in our lives as well. And for me, you know, working television and making documentaries, that was wonderful, the storytelling as well, but it was with a team of people. Uh, and although there's a wonderful team here of course with Penguin and great editors and so on it's, this is a much more intimate journey because you, you can say to your audience if you're lucky enough you know I've got this story can I share it with you and there can't be anything more exciting than that because they're trusting you to take them on a journey and allow you to tell them a, a story and as long as you get it right you know, how satisfying is it that people say well I really enjoyed that
6: I agree with all of that, and particularly with Harry saying that it is about reaching out and bringing the past perhaps to people who might not otherwise have understood it. But one of the things I love most is the sense of actually reaching back into the past, what I'm learning about it as I'm actually writing. And sometimes you can even find something that isn't really officially known. There are a number of unsolved historical mysteries out there and I love those because that's when a writer becomes a, a mixture between a, a detective and a conspiracy theorist. You can make up any possible solutions. In Blood and Steel, I deal with a, a real-life um, mystery, the death of the Comte de Soissons. We have so many different accounts. It was the most convenient death in the entire century. It, it's basically what saved Richelieu and France. But... Some people say he killed himself. Some say he was killed by an agent of Richelieu. Some people even say it was an accident that he shot himself with his own pistol while raising the visor of his helmet. I think I know what really did happen, but it's been up to me to come up with an answer that satisfies all the known facts, but that also fits with the other explanations. But the book I'm working on at the moment, I'm actually coming across something where I've come up with an obvious fictional solution to a problem... But the more you dig in, the more you begin to realise this is probably what actually happened. There are clues everywhere. It's huge. It it could have it's a totally new way of looking at why the charge of the light brigade happened at all. But the excitement of that, like being an archaeologist, it's it it can't compare with anything.
2: It's like- for me it's two reasons um, the first is to bring forward bits of history that are so um, obscure but were so major at the time I mean in the owl killers it was these cities of women that was this vast movement all over Europe um, which is largely forgotten by, by historians today and so it's an, an opportunity to delve into those kinds of really obscure bits of history and make them alive and exciting for people But the second thing comes down to pure storytelling. And I remember um, on one occasion, I went to uh, a storytelling event that was in a ruined castle. And there was a man dressed in medieval costume, sitting by a brazier in the dark. And he was telling one of the stories of the Fenlands and the ghosts coming out of the marshes. And... I was with an audience of children. I was just sitting at the back and although the children were terrified, they were edging closer and closer to this <laughs> man in the dark um, and that 's really <laughs> what I want to do with the reader to have them edge closer and closer and to ha- and to fire the imagination because when I was a little girl, I used to lie in bed under the bedclothes. Um, with a radio that I wasn't supposed mm-hmm. to have and listened to things like the Murder on Black tour and the Hound of the Baskervilles and my mind um, was filled with these images because we didn't have television or anything and it's to get back to that way of telling a story so that the reader's mind is fired as well because I'm a great believer in the writer only writes half the story it's the reader who mm-hmm. fills in the rest and it's a dialogue between reader and writer, and, and that's what I want to create.
1: And that's it. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Alex, Mary, and all the authors who took part. You can find out more about their books, as well as comment on this episode, and listen to many more at thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And remember, you can email us at podcast at and we're on Twitter as at penguinpodcast.
5: You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.